This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Hugh Mackay is a national treasure. I found his level of self-awareness and honesty remarkable as he opens up about his life and learnings of how we can all live our best lives. So I have to confess that I was talking to my mother in England and she asked me, who are you interviewing? Uh, And I knew that she wouldn't know you from a bar of soap. And I was thinking, hold on, how do I introduce Hugh to my mum in England? And what I actually said without really thinking about it was I said, he's the David Attenborough of Australian society. Now, I know that you, your, modest, your modesty won't let you accept that comparison, but I think it's valid. Uh, and you have had us under your microscope for 60 years. And before we get into your five choices, uh, I'd like to ask you, are you more or less optimistic after that 60 years of, of the species that is the Australian human? Um unquestionably more optimistic and i think uh oh fabulous <laughs> and i think i'm even more optimistic now that we've got a pandemic to cope with i was getting very worried about us when we had 28 uninterrupted consecutive years of economic growth and we were all getting very complacent and drifting into that dreamy state once again of thinking how lucky we are and we're sort of immune from the problems of the rest of the world. Uh, The escalator will just keep going up for us. Uh, This is not a good state for an individual to be in or for a society to be in. Uh, In my research career, I often spoke, before they all died, I often spoke to members of the generation who lived through the Great Depression. Some of them had also lived through, well, most of them had lived through the Spanish flu and then World War II. And they looked back and they very typically said that was the making of us, you know, that was when we really clarified our values, that's when we got our priorities set and those lessons, that's when we really learned about the value of the neighbourhood and those lessons never left us. Those values have stayed with us all our lives and they're often mocked by their offspring for never throwing out a spare bit of string, etc. But uh, it's been a long time since we've had a really serious crisis to contend with. And we need crises, you know, it's no no good thinking that it's blue skies all the way. So I think this will have been a very important corrective. And even though it's, I mean, it's awful if people have contracted the virus and it's appalling for the families who've lost someone to the virus. Uh, and it's dreadful, at least in the short term, for people who've lost their jobs or lost their businesses. I'm totally sympathetic to all of that. But uh, in terms of the bigger picture, I think this will have turned out to be a very useful corrective for us, Nigel. What an amazing uh, perspective. I mean, you, you, that's one of the things that you always do, I find. You come at things with a fresh, thought-provoking perspective. We're going to move into your first choice. 
And you have chosen a film that you might be surprised to learn is the most chosen on Five of My Life. Really? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so Star, Star Wars, with Nail and I, have both been beaten by your choice, which is one of my personal favourites, Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso. Tell us why you, yeah, why you have chosen that, the 1989 Oscar winner. Yes. Uh, I should preface this by saying I am not a I am not a person who cries in movies. Uh, I can remember weeping uncontrollably at Bambi uh, when I was a little kid, but Cinema Paradiso hit me at a very strange period in my life, and I recall I watched it in a cinema that I'd often been to as a kid and as a and as a teenager. Um, and I came out of the movie feeling really disturbed. There's a particular scene which I'll describe. Uh, and I drove then to the suburb nearby where I had grown up and I just wept uncontrollably, uh, sort of hunched over the steering wheel of the car, uh, not really able to explain why this thing had, had hit me in the guts. But the scene that triggered it was the scene where our hero, uh, who's now become a highly successful uh, movie maker, uh, returns, movie producer, returns to the village in Sicily where he grew up and where he fell in love with cinema. And he goes back to the bedroom of his childhood and turns over various possessions and looks at things still hanging on the wall. And that... Uh, propelled me back to my own childhood uh, and to the regrets that I didn't realise I lived with uh, uh, in, to, to such an extent. And they were regrets to do with um, particularly the breakdown of my first marriage, the difficulties in negotiating custody of the kids, um, but also it, it propelled me back into my own childhood and adolescence. I mean, the cinema Paradiso is all about this little village in Sicily, which is a long way from a northern suburb of Sydney, <laughs> but at the same period, uh, straight after the end of World War II, when I was a, a, a young primary school kid. And there were some remarkable similarities, Nigel, even though, of course, culturally there are a lot of differences, but it was a very oppressive time, um, the late 40s. Um, religion was a very, and my family were absolutely devout churchgoers. I uh, grew up in a, in a family where religion was kind of central to the weekly cycle, uh, but a very repressive uh, kind of religion or oppressive, uh, a sexually repressed kind of society, fear of communism, <laughs> no television, so we escaped to the cinema. Uh, a very male-dominated kind of society. And so there were things about life in that little village that reminded me of life in my own suburban city when I was growing up. But I don't think that's what really struck me. I think it was really what happens when you go back, revisit your childhood, and then think about what's happened in the interim. And in my case, I wasn't very pleased with what had happened in the interim. The, the other thing about, there's a more intellectual reason why I love that film as well. In, in later life, going back to such an evocative movie, 
that that it's actually also brilliant social commentary. I mean, it's 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 a social researcher's dream uh, to get that sense of what was going on in Sicily, but around the Western world in the wake of World War II, uh, and how how that all changed uh, as we moved into the fifties uh, and society began to open up, the church began to lose its grip, communism turned out not to be the great threat that people had feared, and so on. So at many levels, this is a movie that absolutely lives with me. Can I uh, bring you back, if, if and, and please don't go anywhere you don't want to go, but if I can bring you back to the, when you looked back and you, you weren't pleased with the expression you used and the regrets, if is the, the repressive religious, sexual uh, environment, circumstances that you grew up with, like many other people in Australia of the time, is is how did that and what did that lead to that led you to having those regrets that led you to sob in the car? Uh, I, I grew up uh, taking on board a bundle of prejudices. I grew up with a narrow worldview I had no idea of what tolerance meant. I had no idea of what inclusivity meant. I had no idea how crucial to the health of a society diversity is. I mean, I grew up, my my parents would have been appalled, for example, if I had gone out with a Catholic girl because I was a Protestant. That is something that I really regret. I, I regret the fact that I seem to be locked in a state of immaturity for far too long. Uh, I I remember the day I walked out of secondary school. I walked out of the school gate, age 16, no idea in the world what I was going to do with my life, no idea of what kind of job I might do, no sense of I didn't even know where Sydney University was, let alone whether I might go to it. In, In the end, I did go to it, but only as an evening student, which hardly counts. Um, So I had that sense of being in a fog and I stayed in that fog for a long time, Nigel. I I, I recount this with no pleasure or pride, Um, but I think I I got in. Luckily, I mean, my father, who I was not close to and who I thought was not a particularly sensitive soul and didn't understand me particularly well, but he arranged a job interview for me in a public opinion research company. There were only about three of them in Australia at the time. We're talking about 1955. Um, And I fell on my feet with that job, not not that particular job, which was very tedious. It was a low-grade clerical job pre-computers, making little (laughs) pencil marks on paper as a form of data analysis. Um, But that job turned out to be the threshold to the only career I could ever have wanted, but I didn't know that at the time. And while I was still in the fog, I got married far too young to a lovely girl who was far too young. And we had three children far too young. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I think I was into my 40s before I kind of snapped out of it and started thinking about what on earth am I doing? And you know, what do I really, by then I was divorced and remarried. Uh, and just starting to emerge from that strange feeling. I, when I look back, I think immaturity is probably still the best word of being being very slow to mature uh, emotionally, intellectually, culturally. Uh, and it's something that I can't explain but only describe. 
So I, I um, uh, gave a TED speech ages ago where I started with the St. Benedict quote, which is, pause for a moment, you wretched weakling, and take stock of your miserable existence. And I find your description uh, of your early decades incredibly moving and helpful and self-aware. And, and lots of us are in that fog and don't realise it. And I have to say, uh, it echoes some of my experience thinking about you know what just what are we doing on this planet i mean i mean and and, and some people never <laughs> ask that question it, and it's just a sort of a, a constant slog to pay the mortgage and it's a real gift to be able to have the space to think just what are we doing and live a choiceful life yeah i and the latest book that i wrote a book called the inner self is an expression of all this because it's a reflection in a way on and not, not a personal reflection, but a reflection on that process. Because I think it's true that most of us, um, I was perhaps an extreme example, but most of us through adolescence and early adulthood are more concerned about the externals. We're more concerned about finding a partner, maybe having kids, getting a job, uh, renting or buying a house, establishing who we are in an external sense, our social identity. But there does come a time uh, and it wasn't a sudden moment for me. It wasn't a sort of midlife crisis that lasted for 48 hours and then I was set. I think the process is still going on. But there does come a time when we say, actually, there's more to me than all this external stuff. What happens when I look inside? And what I find really intriguing, and it's really the central theme of this latest book, is that the deeper we look inside, the less we find anything unique. I mean, our personal identity is all about the difference between Nigel and Hugh, and, and that can be in terms of um, religion or ethnicity or background or intelligence or height or anything. You know, it might be gender, it might be all sorts of things. Uh, identity is all about how we're different. But when you look deeply inside yourself, what you discover is your common, our common humanity. The absolute core of who you are is not about Nigel as distinct from everyone else. It's about Nigel absolutely in, indivisibly interconnected with everybody else. Uh, that that we, are, we are all part of this sort of vibrating web of humanity and beyond humanity to other species as well and go out to the cosmos. But that's who we are in our essence, it's to do with um, uh, what we have in common. And, and as humans, we belong to a social species where our primary responsibility to the species is to form uh, relationships, to promote social cohesion and, and social harmony. That, that's, that's our role in life. And that means setting aside all the stuff we get hung up on about how we're different and focusing on this deeper question of what do we have in common? What do we share because we're human? I think it was Mandela that said we are all bound inescapably by a blanket of mutuality. Yes. Which I thought was quite a nice thing. Now, now, now your, your book, The Inner Self, I, I read that in two sittings and it, it floored me. I, I just think it's an important, uh, moving, helpful book. And it's the perfect uh, link to your book choice on Five of My Life. You have chosen, uh, I love this one, 1967, On Becoming a Person by the famous pioneering US psychotherapist Carl Rogers. Uh, and I gather you've taken that 
through your professional and personal life for the last 50 or so years. Very much so. And in fact, that book uh, was a crucial ingredient in the gradual process of coming out of the fog. <laughs> right. But its first impact on me was professional. Um, I read it first when I was uh, working in the audience research uh, department of the ABC. Um, I was working with a brilliant pioneering researcher, one of those people who's an absolute inspiration and remained an inspiration for the rest of my life. As a human being, he was a wreck. Uh, he was devoid of a moral compass. Uh, <laughs> his, 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 he was, uh, I mean, it's a long story and I won't go into his story, but he had a huge intellectual impact on me. He was an inspiration to work with. And, and, the, and the beginning of the process was when I began to realise that as a researcher, like most people in the public, public opinion research business, I'd been bound by the whole idea of the survey, the questionnaire-based survey. What do we want to find out? Oh, well, that determines the questions we will ask. Uh, why do people watch this television program? Oh, well, the way to find that out is to ask them. Why do you watch that program? Why do people vote that way? Oh, well, just ask them. Why did you vote for Gough Whitlam, uh, et cetera? Um, uh, and, and in a moment of blinding <laughs> revolutionary insight, uh, it occurred to me both under the influence of my boss at the ABC and most particularly reading Carl Rogers, uh, it became obvious to me that we had, in research, we had much to learn from the field of psychotherapy, and in particular from Roger's approach to psychotherapy, which was really not to ask anyone anything, but to find ways of encouraging people to talk about their feelings, their attitudes, their hopes, their aspirations, and, of course, in his case, their doubts and insecurities and neuroses and all the things that clinical psychologists are concerned about. Now, I'm a social psychologist, not a clinical psychologist, but it occurred to me that if we want to do really rich, really valuable, really insightful social research, then we've got to break out of the straitjacket of asking questions and we've got to borrow some of the thinking of people like Carl Rogers uh, and that led to what was then a really pioneering idea, which was uh, we won't, when we have an interview with someone, we won't have a set of questions prepared. We'll have a conversation and we'll let it evolve and we'll let them set the pace the way you do. Uh, but not only that, we thought maybe as, the, as Carl Rogers himself did with his so-called encounter groups, Maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea sometimes on some subjects to get small groups of people together to talk to each other about the subject that we're interested in rather than answering any questions or talking to me, the researcher. So um, in, in about 1962, I guess, or 61, uh, we, we began experimenting with the idea of the small group discussion as a research tool. It's since been... Uh, evolved and perverted into the appalling focus group. We, we won't waste time talking about what's wrong with the contemporary version of this. But back then we did, the very first uh, group method I used was in a study where we were trying to figure out how people choose the television programs they watch. 
Now, back, back then, of course, people tended to watch television in groups. Families watched programs together and often even invited the neighbours in to watch a, come, come in and watch I Love Lucy uh, or whatever it was. So the technique we used was to go into people's homes by arrangement and just sit with them for about three hours, saying, saying nothing, just observing and just saying to them, just, just talk about what you're thinking. So as they changed programs and reacted, they just chatted to each other and we just listened. And then when it was all over, we went away. Uh, and that was brilliant uh, in its effect. I mean, it was, it was like a gold mine. Uh, learning stuff you could never learn by saying to people, why did you watch that program? And, and, and at, at the core of it, which for me, uh, it's quite transformative in my own life from about 10 years ago, is at the core of it is active listening. I, I think most of us, which it's a, it's a source of sort of shame and regret in my own life, and I, I constantly work at it, and you are brilliant at it, obviously Carl put it at the centre of his work, but is why are people so bad at listening when it is the answer to so many of our troubles? Yeah. Um, well, the, 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 the main answer to that is that uh, we all... Through our lives, we construct a kind of, I, I call it a cage, that's my metaphor, framework would be a more polite word, but we construct a framework of attitudes and beliefs and knowledge. We, as we acquire experience, we create this kind of framework around us, which we need because that's a way of organising, systematising everything we know and think and feel, uh, and we feel very secure inside that little cage that we build for ourselves, that psychological cage. The problem is that once we've got it under construction, and by adolescence, it's a pretty complicated structure. Once we've got it under construction, we don't see the world clearly anymore. We see the world through the bars of our cage. So we get a filtered view of the world. And part of that process is we are looking for messages, for information, for opinions that reinforce what we already think. Now, that makes us extremely poor listeners because we're right from the start, we're being selective. We're listening for stuff we agree with. And what Carl Rogers has, <laughs> has really, uh, really opened me up to was the idea that listening is an act of courage. And it's an act of courage because if we're going to seriously listen, we're going to step outside the comfort and security of our own cage and enter into the cage of another. We're going to try and imagine what it must be like to be that person who's saying something that I could never agree with, but he obviously believes it, so I should listen. Uh, Rogers puts it beautifully, and I agree absolutely with this, that listening is about running the risk of changing your mind. And if you're not running the risk of changing your mind, if you're not courageous enough to be open to what you're hearing, then you're not really listening. You're just engaging in a process of cage reinforcement. Do you know, the, 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 sorry, the, the, um, the, the, uh, the German theologian Paul Tillich uh, said, echoing on from your courage point, is that listening is an act of love. It's actually, it's not an act of opening your ears. It's an act of love to see you, 
to hear you. I I just adore your cage analogy. It's 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 so helpful and it just resonates to be so true. And I think the Tillich quote is wonderful, Nigel. Uh, I, I've expressed it by saying it is the greatest gift we can ever give each other. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big call, but if you ask me what is the deepest of all human needs, apart from our physical needs for food and water and shelter and so on, uh, the deepest of our of human emotional needs is the need or the desire to be taken seriously to be acknowledged, to be, to be appreciated, heard. to be heard. Exactly. So when I know, as I know now, for example, that you're listening to me, it's much more than, oh, Nigel is listening to what I'm saying. It is Nigel is taking me seriously enough to bother listening to, even to bother inviting me onto his podcast. You know, that's a big call. Uh, <laughs> but when we don't listen, and this is why I, I, I said earlier, it's, it, it, the Rogers view of listening didn't only have a massive impact on the way I approached social research, it had a massive impact eventually on my personal life. Um, because if we don't listen, if we just go through mock listening, uh, imitation listening, nodding, smiling, glazing over, looking over someone's shoulder in the hope of catching sight of someone more interesting or <laughs> looking impatiently at our watch, or, or what we're saying, without needing to put it into words, what we're saying, and who would ever want to say this to a partner or to their own child or to a neighbour or to a colleague, what we're saying is, I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening to you. And when I do, when I lock on, when I engage in attentive listening in the Rogers mould, uh, in other words, when I'm being courageous, when I'm being open to the possibility that what you're going to say to me might change me, the biggest message I'm sending you is I take you seriously. And even if when you've said what you want to say and I'm then saying, boy, I can't buy that, Nigel. I mean, that sounds, it sounds like a load of tosh to me, but I, I see that you really believe it. That doesn't matter. I've, I've heard you. I mean, the cardinal rule of the good listener is, receive before you react. Of course you're free to react. Of course you're free to disagree. We can have a knockdown drag out once we've discovered how violently we disagree, but that'll be fun because we're doing it in a position of respect for each other's point of view. We, we've actually respected the other person enough to take on board what they are saying so that we then are qualified to agree or disagree with it. Receive before you react. What what words of wisdom? Now, the, the other wisdom that you have said to me, and, and I'd love you to talk to this, is never ask why in a relationship. <laughs> yes, this is this is an original. This is not out of Carl Rogers, um, <laughs> but it, it came out of my research experience. Uh, I mean, there are two things wrong with asking a question that begins with the word why. One is it sets up the proposition that there must be a rational explanation for what you did. When I say to one of my kids, why did you do that? The assumption is this is able to be explained rationally. So the first thing a kid learns when they have a parent who's always asking why is I better give a reasonable sounding explanation for this. And the same thing happens 
in any conversation between adults or most particularly in research. If you ask someone in a, in a social research project, if you ask someone, why did you buy that car? Why did you marry that woman? Why do you live where you live? Why did you vote for that candidate, etc.? Immediately, you've asked them to sound rational. And one of the things we know about human behavior is that it isn't mainly rational at all. It's a, it's a blend of the rational and the, and the emotional and the head and the heart and almost always the heart wins when there's a contest between the head and heart. And if I say to you, why did you buy that car? You're very unlikely to say to me, because there was something about that rear wheel arch that reminded me of a woman's hips. Uh, what you're much more likely to say is it had zero offset steering uh, <laughs> and, and uh, incredible fuel consumption and, you know, whatever. Um, so, so, Asking why assumes rationality, which is to say we assume that humans are not human. And the other thing that's wrong with it is that people often don't know why they've done something. And it's particularly cruel, especially with kids, particularly cruel to ask why uh, to a child who probably has no idea why they stole something from a shop or why they threw a stone that smashed a window. Uh, they just did it. Um, uh, much of what we do is unconscious. If you doubt that, just think about the number of times you've perhaps driven home from somewhere and you got home and you can't remember the drive because it was just automatic. If something dramatic had intervened, if a truck had pulled out from a side street or someone had veered in front of you and you had to brake sharply, you'd remember that. But so much of what we do just happens automatically or, to use the, the, the psychoanalyst's term, unconsciously. Uh, in fact, I, I remember reading a wonderful book about the unconscious mind in which the author said that when Freud remarked that the conscious mind is just like the tip of the iceberg, uh, that was wrong. The conscious mind is like a little snowball on top of the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> and I think there's a fair bit of truth in that. So much of what we, what we do is done without any kind of rational thought or planning, even, even big life choices. Nigel, it's interesting, when you, when, you, when you ask people, I mean, as a researcher, I always want to know the answer. I always want to ask the question why, but I've learned to put it in, 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 in other words. But you know all the things that I want to know. Why did you, why do why do people do things? Why did why did you get married? Why did you have three kids? Why did you become a dentist? Uh, I, I've conducted those sort of inquiries over many decades, and the most astonishing, initially astonishing, it no longer astonishes me, but the most astonishing thing that I found over and over again was the accidental nature of what we think of as big life decisions, how people kind of fell into things, like I fell into research because my father got me a job as a clerk uh, and I fell in love with the whole idea. Um, but people, you know, I, rem <laughs> I remember talking uh, about life choices actually to a dentist. Um, uh, so he was talking about how he became a dentist and he became a dentist because on the day he was due to enrol at university, he was sick 
and he rang a mate and said, will you enrol for me? And the mate said, yeah, but what do you want me to enrol you in? And he said to his mate, what are you going to enrol in? And the mate said, dentistry. Oh, well, I'll enrol in dentistry. You know, that, that man could be drilling your teeth, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, the idea that we're you know, gripped by some sense of vocation or that you know, we've, we've met the only woman on the planet who we could ever be happy with or that we deliberately decided that three children was the target. I mean, bear in mind that, that approximately 50% of first pregnancies are unplanned. I mean, you and I might well be accidents. Have you heard Tim Minchin's love song to his wife? No. Oh, it's sent. I mean, we're going to get Tim on because Julia Gillard uh, chose him as her sixth question answer. But I, I went to see him in in concert, and I've, I've seen him many times. But he said, "I'm this is a bit soppy, but I'm I'm going to play a song for my wife." Uh, and it started. It goes, uh, you know, dear Amanda, whatever she's called, um, I love you dearly. You think, oh, this is a bit different to a Tim Minchin song. I love you dearly. If I hadn't met you. I probably would have met someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Deep, deep wisdom, Tim. Deep wisdom. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about the accidental nature of things. Um, there's a big push. It's quite fashionable amongst sort of business circles now to talk about your why and your purpose. Do you think that's a bit overblown? Uh, I think it's it, finding your why uh, is a very misleading <laughs> way of putting it. If it leads us to the inner self, then I think that's all right. Finding a sense of purpose to me doesn't mean writing down a list of all the things I'd like to achieve. Finding a sense of purpose to me would involve going deeply inside and saying, ah, I'm a human. That defines my purpose. My role in life is to nurture this species, to engage with neighbourhoods, families, communities, etc. How I do it is far less significant. Whether I'm going to be an advertising executive or a social researcher or a dentist, it's important to our sense of social identity but it's trivial in terms of our deep human purpose. So yeah, finding your why often leads to lists, and I'm very, very suspicious of lists. And also ludicrous statements like taking 3% market share from Hungry Jacks. And you go, I think we've missed the point, guys. Now, moving on to your third choice. I am so pleased with your choice. We're going back to the beginning of the previous century. We are adding our second choral work to the Five of My Life Spotify playlist. It is just an enchanting piece of music, The Bluebird by Charles Stanford. I've just been playing this on repeat. It's driving my wife mad, but it's such a beautiful piece of music, Hugh. Um, tell us, uh, I'm going to say, I was about to say, tell us why. Oh, my goodness, what can I say? Tell us about uh, the now, Bluebird. Now, that's a very important difference, yes. Why don't, why don't you tell us about choosing this piece or why don't you talk about this piece? You're going to get much more out of me than if you say why, because <laughs> if you say why, I'm going to have to give you a rational response. <laughs> I'll, I'll say something profound like, oh, I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are, there are a couple of things about this. Uh, first of all, I've always, since I was in primary school, I have always loved singing in choirs. Uh, I sing in a choir now, 
Uh, it, it won't go on forever. My voice will give out, but at the moment they're still tolerating me. Uh, and one of the things I love about singing in choirs takes us right back to an earlier part of our conversation, which is I know if I stood up and sang a solo, I would empty the hall. But when I sing in a choir, my rather feeble bass voice blends with all those other voices in the choir and what comes out to my astonishment every week I go to that choir rehearsal what comes out is sheer beauty and a sense that it's, it's like a metaphor for the human condition a sense that each of us alone can't achieve very much but in concert with each other in, co in collaboration in cooperation with each other we can do astonishing things including sing the work of Charles Villiers Stanford. Now, strangely enough, I've never so far sung this particular song, but I have sung many of Stanford's other works. He's he's better known as a sort of a composer of English cathedral music, sacred music, um, and I love that uh, musical tradition. Uh, so I've sung a number of his motets, but I came across The Bluebird, one of his few secular songs a few years ago, and like you, I just play it endlessly. Uh, uh, and I, I hope I, I hope the day will come when when I'm uh, able to persuade my present choir master that it's time we sang the Bluebird. The other thing about this, uh, you, you've been listening to it repeatedly. I'm sure. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess that you probably don't yet know the words. Ah, no, because I, I researched it, and and it's the, it's the the birds taking off. It, it's it's. Uh, a two-second description of a bird flying over a lake that's that's dragged out over four and a half minutes. <laughs> that's all right. But but it's too high for you, Hugh. Surely you couldn't sing that. Is it, I, I I'm the the, the yeah. versions that I. Uh, no, no, you've got to listen to the. You, you, oh no, you've got to listen to the bass part. You've got to listen to a choir sing it and listen to that bass line, which is actually quite low. Ah, okay. And very beautiful. Uh, my ear is naturally attuned to listening to the right. bass. When I listen to an orchestra, I naturally listen first to the double bass. Um, but no, the thing I was going to say about the about the words, I mean, the words are very simple, as you say, spun out into a major orchestral work. Sorry, I'll say that again. I just dropped something. Uh, the words are very beautiful and simple, and they're strung out, as you say, over many minutes of the orchestral work. But the, But the words of this particular song remind me of something that Marshall McLuhan said, that Canadian media guru uh, who rose to great prominence in the 60s and influenced my thinking a lot about mass media. Uh, he said, the words of a song are as irrelevant to the effect of the song as the content of a television program is to the effect of television with a capital T. That was his, the medium is the message argument. Uh, and I think it's true, and I think the Bluebird is a lovely example of that. If they were just singing La La La, it would still be one of the most deeply moving choral works you could I, ever hear. I absolutely agree. And I only know the words because I was researching for, for this conversation, and I it didn't enhance my enjoyment at all once I found out what it was. But I, it does make me want to ask you a question, and I, I might have got this wrong, but, but because it's about a bird and it's about flying... Uh, um, Am I right in remembering that you didn't fly for fifty years, or am I? Is that, is that, have I just made that up? Yes, yes. No, you, you didn't make it. wasn't It wasn't as long as as fifty, but uh, I, I didn't fly for yes, probably fifteen years. Tell us about that. Uh, oh, <laughs> well, I used to fly everywhere. 
and I do fly when I have to now, but I've, I've never enjoyed it since the day I was flying on a jet from Sydney to Brisbane. Uh, and as we approached Brisbane, uh, we hit clear air turbulence, uh, uh, what, what is now described as wind shear, and the plane simply dropped. And it dropped for long enough for everyone to feel that we were simply dropping, that we were traveling uh, vertically, not horizontally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was a shocking thing. The, the interior fittings of the plane all came to bits and people who weren't strapped in hit the ceiling. Uh, four of the six uh, stewardesses on that plane at the time, we called them stewardesses back then, uh, were knocked out and were stretched out, uh, wow. uh, out, out cold in the aisle. Um, uh, a baby being held in its mother's arms in front of me hit the oh, roof no. and came, oh. came back to its mother's arms. Um, uh, it, was a, it was a frightening experience. I learned later, a friend of mine, uh, had a friend who was on that flight who was a pilot who said to my friend, I thought that was it. I thought we would not recover from that. But we did. We, we hit the bottom as if we were hitting rock and then flew on. Uh, and the captain apologised and said, we, you know, we, we have no way of knowing that such a thing is going to happen to us. The, the, best, the best moment of it was when we landed on the tarmac at Brisbane Airport and one of the two remaining flight attendants got on to the PA and read the standard spiel about how we hope you have enjoyed your <laughs> flight <laughs> from Sydney this morning. And, Look forward uh, to seeing uh, you again. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got off that plane thinking I'm never going to fly again. But in fact, then I thought, no, that's ridiculous. So I flew back from Sydney, uh, from Brisbane to Sydney and that flight had an aborted landing at Sydney Airport. We were all about to touch down and suddenly the thing revved and uh, flew off again and circled a few times. Never explained. We circled a few times and then we landed normally. Um, and I did one more flight also to Brisbane where we never got out of cloud and it was bumpy the whole way. And when I got off that flight, I said, I think trains <laughs> and cars are fantastic. <laughs> and so I just gave up flying. Um, but then... Um, I met my present wife, uh, who at that time was uh, the honorary secretary of the International Menopause Society, and she said uh, when our courtship was proceeding, I'm going to the Congress of the International Menopause Society in Buenos Aires. Would you like to come? And I, of course, unhesitatingly said yes. And only thought later that probably to get to Buenos Aires in time for the Congress, we'd have to fly. So I flew with her to Buenos Aires and uh, we bumped our way across the Andes and it wasn't very pleasant, but I did it. And I've been flying ever since, but reluctantly, and I avoid it whenever I can because the slightest bit of turbulence is like a flashback to that wind shear experience. You, you get triggered. That is one of the best stories on Five of My Life. <laughs> Thank you for showing that. And, and, and props to Sheila for getting you back in the air because uh, you, you, the, the world <laughs> needs to see more Mackay. Um, your, your place, it might be surprising, but uh, you've chosen Canberra. Uh, I, I really love you to uh, 
talk a bit about that? Yes, I very nearly chose the place where I grew up, where I wept over Cinema Paradiso. Um, but Canberra, um, Canberra's been part of my life since I was in primary school. We we came here, my family came here on one of our school holidays and we walked around and saw these vast paddocks with roads built. Um, I remember my father pointing out all the fire hydrants that were sticking up in all these paddocks as Canberra was getting prepared for the influx of population. There was no Lake Burley Griffin back then. Uh, and I'd been back to Canberra, my very first business trip, <laughs> business trip in quotes, when I was working in that job as a lowly clerk, I had to fly to Canberra uh, to do some work at, at what was then called the Bureau of Census and Statistics, uh, working in a demountable hut in Canberra. Uh, and I've been a regular visitor to Canberra ever since. Um, but I'd never contemplated living here until uh, about four years ago. Uh, my wife, who's a medical practitioner, gave up a clinical practice but wanted to keep on doing what the other thing she did, which was teach medical students, and she was offered a position uh, tutoring in the medical school at ANU. Um, and so I thought, well, that's the answer. I didn't, you know, we'd been thinking, where will we live? Because we didn't need to live in Sydney anymore. So we looked around Canberra and decided this was the place, and we found a wonderful apartment uh, and moved here uh, with not much, I mean, the, uh, our two youngest grandchildren also live here, which was a bonus, but not the reason for coming here. Um, so we came here basically for Sheila's work, um, but now uh, the place has absolutely captivated us. It's a physically beautiful place. It's now a very mature city of half a million people. One of my nieces said when I said that I was moving to Canberra, ah, the most boring city in the world. And a lot of people say that based on old experience. But Canberra is a vibrant, interesting, culturally diverse, sophisticated city, well run. Uh, I mean, people used to say there are only two places to eat in Canberra. Well, there's about 202 places to eat now. Um, it, it's physically beautiful. It's architecturally beautiful. But the thing that's taken me by surprise is what a warm community it is. I've just, more or less from the moment I arrived, with neighbours, with the choir I joined, with people I meet in the street, with the people at the local post office and other shops and so on, uh, there's just been this sense of, you know, we're, we're a community, you've joined us, we're glad to see you. People would never dream of passing you in the street. Uh, where I live without smiling and saying hello, whereas in Sydney, people would never dream of smiling and saying hello in case they got mugged. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but uh, there's a, the avoidance of eye contact is an art form in our major cities, whereas here uh, it sort of comes naturally. So I, I've, I've been quite captivated. It's probably too early in my period here to comment rationally about it, Nigel, because I'm still in love with the place and, as we know, in the early stages of being in love, you say all kinds of things you might subsequently revise. <laughs> I love hearing you talk about it, Hugh, because you have a obvious sense of belonging. And in our previous conversations, when you were talking about uh, being heard is and seen is the most taken seriously, the most important thing, I, I would put right up there in the top three, a sense of genuine belonging. And I think in this world, what's happened with the the offline world is, are we connected to some person who's part of a group on the internet, but they might be 15,000 miles away? 
It is a yes. thing of beauty to feel belonging to your physical near adjacent circumstances. And there's a, been wonderful studies about the benefit of loose ties. So not yes. just not just your best friends and your lover and your children, but when I say you know hello to the person who runs the corner store where I buy my milk, I, I like the fact that she knows me and says hello back. Now yes. I, I, I'm not going to invite her to my house; she's not going to invite her, <laughs> vice versa. But that is a loose tie, and I've got yes. hundreds of them where I live, and it sounds yes. like you've got thousands. So I, and, and you deserve happiness, mate. Well, that's very kind of you to put it like that. At that point you just made, it absolutely crucial, Nigel, and it's another one of what I think of as the potential benefits of the pandemic, that we've rediscovered the neighbourhood. Uh, we, we know about being uh, a partner or a parent or a sibling or a colleague or a friend. I think during the period of the rise of rampant individualism in our culture, more social fragmentation, a dangerous loss of social cohesion, we forgot what it means to be a neighbour. And it's exactly as you've described, it's a loose attachment. It's someone we can smile and say hello to and help them out if they're in a bit of strife or mow their lawn if they've got a broken leg or do their shopping if they're a bit frail and elderly, but it doesn't go any further. We're not friends, we're neighbours. It's a wonderful, brilliant uh, category uh, role to play. And when we forget it, our lives are diminished accordingly. And I think the rediscovery of the neighbourhood, courtesy of COVID-19, is a great thing. We're coming on to your uh, last choice uh, on Five of My Life, the possession, my traditionally my favourite of the five. You have chosen my library. That's quite a grand statement. You've put it out there. Uh, describe it and tell us about it, Mr Mackay. Uh, yes, it is a, a grandiose. I, do, I never refer to it as the library. It's the books. It's my collection of books. But I am so attached. Uh, Buddhists would not like to hear me saying this, but I am so attached to my books. I had to give away hundreds and hundreds of books when I moved to Canberra into this apartment um, because I just had too many. Um, and I'm still giving them away. Uh, but having... Finally, a beautiful piece of furniture crafted by a wonderful local craftsman who took far too long to do it and charged me far too much money. But the result is the most beautiful piece of furniture made from Tasmanian blackwood. I have, for the first time in my life, my books are beautifully housed and I can walk along and I recognise all these old mates, non-fiction and fiction, uh, some I can easily give away when I have to, but some I could never give away. Imagine giving away an, my original copy of Carl Rogers' On Becoming a Person or any of the novels of Graham Greene. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of books that I really am attached to and do go back to. Uh, and when I walk into that little space in our apartment, I feel not just a sense of familiarity and comfort that here are, here are my old favourite books, but a sense of tranquility. Uh, the, the Argentinian writer and, uh, and, and critic, Jorge Luis Borges, um, uh, said, I may not get the quote exactly right, but I think he said, I have always imagined that paradise would be a kind of library. <laughs> and so my collection of books which tongue-in-cheek we'll call the library, is like the little bit of paradise where I live. 
It's wonderful hearing you talk about that, because and, and the distinction's really important, that, that there are some libraries around the world as buildings. I don't know if you've been to the, the, the Strahov Monastery in Prague. It's a, it's a beautiful, just incredible library. But it doesn't have... I mean, I stand there in awe looking at the architecture in the you know 13th century Bible or whatever else, but because they're not the books that you're talking about, the signposts in your life, I can look at the books that I weed out there are, you know, you, I read a novel, it's lovely, but I throw it out. But the ones that had an effect on me, you know, Somerset Morn of Human Bondage, whatever it might be, you go, I'm not going to throw that out. I don't care, even if I never read it ever again, because it, it reminds me of an important stepping stone and pivot in in my life. And and it, it, I feel when I go to my children's friends' units and there aren't bookshelves, I feel like like where the where are the bookshelves because because they they've grown up in a different life. I love going to people our age houses and then I sort of do that scan of their bookshelves <laughs> to go. Oh, they've read lots of Julian Barnes or Martin Amis or whatever it might be that yes. that they might be my type of person or you know, I, I, it's just a it's a window into their soul if I can be so pretentious. No, I agree entirely, and like you, I. I don't, don't feel as if I know someone properly until I've seen their bookshelves. Um, and as a researcher, of course, I was always going into people's homes, thousands and thousands of people's homes to interview them. Um, and that was one of the things that I, I was always very attentive to the ambience and, and, and the kind of atmospherics of the place, including the furnishings, all those things give you clues about what you're trying to find out, but nothing more so than the books on the bookcase or, as you've just said, the absence of a bookcase. Or in one lovely example I very vividly remember, I was interviewing a bloke whose bookcase was full of absolutely uniform things and from a distance I couldn't see. I thought, is this an interminable series of encyclopedias? No, it was a series, the old the old videotapes of rugby matches. <laughs> So, th- so this is, it's been such a wonderful conversation because it- it's a great place to wrap this up because what you have been talking about, about your library and your books is what I'm trying to do with the five of my life. It's, it's a window. It's not, it- it's not, you know, comprehensive. It's just a sideways look into different people's lives. And, and it's been a real pleasure to hear you. I- I've got a couple of things uh, to ask you before we part company. Uh, the first is I, I know you are genuinely and authentically after a kinder, uh, better world, you know, leaving it better than you found it. If there was one thing you wish, individ- not governments, because we can't control that, one thing that you wish people would do, what would that be? Yes. Uh, it's very easy for me to answer that, Nigel, because I have thought a lot about it. And it is that I wish people would embrace the discipline of compassion as a way of life, not recognising that compassion, it's a form of love, but it's a curious form of love. It's, it's the love that requires no affection, the love that requires no emotion. Samuel Johnson said something like, I'm capable of fondness, oh, sorry, I'm capable of kindness, even when I'm not capable of fondness. And that, I think, is the breakthrough moment for nurturing our families. There are people in our extended families we don't like, but we can nevertheless show compassion towards them, kindness, respect, etc. There are people in our street we'll never like, 
But compassion is the key that unlocks this possibility of showing kindness as a discipline, as a way of being in the world without having to feel anything. Those are beautiful, profound words. Um, My traditional last question, and it has to have a why in it, I do apologise, is tell us who you would like to hear on Five of My Life next and why. I (laughs) apologise. I think I'd like to hear the Prime Minister that most Australians would like to have on your next programme. I refer, of course, to Jacinda Ardern. Ah, lovely. Prime Minister of New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I say that, uh, I think I can give you an honest why. I think she's taken even herself by surprise at the extent to which she went from being a last-minute choice just before an election to struggling to form a coalition government not having the numbers to do it in her own right, to then taking on the governing of a country that was going to go through the appalling Christchurch massacre, the appalling volcanic eruption at White Island, the appalling events of COVID-19, manage it all with extraordinary aplomb and start to become a serious presence on the international stage and to have many people looking at New Zealand quizzically and saying, how do they do the things they do? She's got, there's absolutely no chance that she will not be re-elected. She may even govern in her own right. Um, but I think many Australians look to her example and say there's something about her embrace of compassion as a way of doing politics and as a way of encouraging her country to become a kinder place. I, I think it is, for the, for New Zealand, it's been a remarkable political experiment and I'm sure they're going to go on with it uh, at their next election. Well, I look forward to hearing her five. Hugh, thank you so much for sharing your five on Five My Life. Great pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Nigel. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 